Lord, we love you. And this morning we're reminded once again how faithful you are to speak to us. What an incredible treasure you have given to us, Lord, simply in this extraordinary eternal library of your word. On this Memorial Day weekend, when we remember the sacrifices of so many others who have given so much for righteous causes, who have laid down their lives for others, we find in that model a reminder of the Messiah and the measure to which you have gone, the length you went, Lord, to save us. Now, Lord, we pray that through the preaching and teaching of your word this morning, you would help us to work out our salvation with reverent fear and holy trembling, that we would seriously hear from you and seriously consider how you would help us to truly apply what you have done into who we are and how we live this day and every day so that your will would be fulfilled in Jesus' name. Amen. I was watching a television program recently in which there was an adult man, probably about my age, and he was being reunited with his elderly mother. The circumstances of life were such that she had not been able to be in the same room with him for many, many years, perhaps decades. She was a woman who had gone through tremendous strife. She was born into a very privileged kind of situation, both wealth and uh, uh, influence, uh, a measure of fame, if you will. All the things that people might think uh, afford a blessed life, but in fact, her life had been full of trauma. She had issues of mental illness. She had been institutionalized for years. Her family had been subjected to violence. And many of the things that you and I might esteem, the things that the world value of wealth and fame, had been ripped from her. She had ultimately adopted a religious life and had become very humble, both in the circumstances of her life, but perhaps more importantly, not just the clothes that, the, that she wore or the place that she lived, but the heart that she had. Now, her son had risen and risen in worldly esteem and was a person of uh, tremendous notoriety and influence. But the peace that this mother exuded from within her seemed to have eluded the son. And in this scene, as they were face to face, and they were tenderly, gingerly sort of feeling out how to bring reconciliation to this somewhat strained relationship. The mother said to her son at one point, how is your faith? Maybe it would have caused him to react that way too. A few tears arise when we wonder, how is my faith? It, it can be a daunting question. I'm posing it to you today. How is your faith? What's the status of you and Jesus? Is Jesus a person for you or just an idea? Does the Lord speak to you? Has God got a purpose for you? Now, if the answers to that are no, 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 let me remind you what the word says, that in Christ, all the answers of God are yes, 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 and amen. 
So you can be connected to Christ. How is your faith? The mother asked a son, knowing that the son had been reared in the things of the Lord. That they were part of a church. That they read and regarded the Bible. That there was prayer. But all of those things can be present. And if in the heart, somewhere there's an absence or an abscess, a wound that has festered, or a connection that's come unplugged, then perhaps the way that you or I would answer that question, how is your faith, could reflect what the son said to his mother. He answered in one word. How is your faith, she asked. And he replied, dormant. It's hibernating. It's stagnant. It's stopped. But it's not gone. It's there. If you live in a place where it snows, you know that there are things that grow even under the snow. I heard an amazing thing this week. I'd never known this. Do you know that fires can keep burning under the snow? They call them apparently colloquially. I don't, I'm sure this isn't the scientific term. They call them zombie fires. Oh, we're so obsessed with the zombie stuff these days. <laughs> it's because they keep kind of low-level burning underneath the snow. So they're just sort of smoldering. But then if the snow melts in the spring, a fire that went dormant in the fall can rise up again. Now, that could be devastation if you're talking about a forest fire. But if you're talking about the fire of faith, that could be revelation. That could be salvation, right? Maybe there's something dormant in you that God would call to life this morning. That today, as his word reaches you, it would spark once again that thing that has gone underground, that has gone to sleep. But in any case, my response to anyone who would say dormant is the response that the mother gave. So I'll do the whole exchange for you again. Son, how is your faith? Dormant, he said. And the mother said, that's not good. That's not good. And then she proceeded to talk about how her faith had helped her through all those traumas that she had gone through. Now, someone could say, God, why did you allow these things to happen? And why was I subjected to these particular pains and hardships? Why did those people that I love, why did I lose them? Why was I the one who had to struggle with this mental challenge or this emotional burden? Why did I lose the riches that I had? Why is it, Lord, that I should be scorned by the world? What purpose could you have in that, Lord? But here was a woman of faith who, instead of focusing on all those things, focused on how God had helped her through her faith how her faith had seen her through and sustained her. And it's all the more meaningful because, in fact, though whether this conversation ever happened or not, I do not know, the characters in the story are real people. It's based on historical figures. And we certainly know this, that the things that are described of her going through in life, she really went through. And she was a woman who continued to hold on to her faith. And she says to him, my faith, has helped me. And then she almost immediately corrects herself. No, it isn't just helped. And there's a pause, the proverbial pregnant pause, as they say. There's something coming. 
but a word formulated in my mind as she paused. She said, it hasn't just helped. It's been everything. And I was thinking, it, he, God, he doesn't just help us. He saves us. You see, that's salvation. It's not just some far-off legalized notion of a theoretical, theological treat. Some sugar plum of heaven dancing in our heads. It's help here, today, now. The help that we need. We can't survive without it. It's, it's a life preserver off the deck of the Titanic. We are sinking. We are perishing. In fact, what the law makes clear is we're already dead. And it's God who saves us. And the purpose of the law was to make us aware of how desperately we need God and how utterly he will help us and save us in Christ. Romans chapter 10 is the continuation of Paul's statements of assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God that has been secured for us in Christ. So why is it that last week, as we looked at Romans 9, this week as we look at Romans chapter 10, next week, by God's grace, as we look at Romans chapter 11, Paul keeps going back to the Jewish people and talking about what their status is with God. The reason that he does is because if you are familiar with the word of God, you know that even as we discussed last week, God is a promise maker. And God is a promise keeper. And the promise is to you. Now the promises that God makes, covenant, we call that, those promises have been made at particular times to particular people. God said, I will make a people for myself. In fact, the promise to Abraham was about producing a people. And the people that were produced out of Abraham by the son of the promise, which is Isaac, who gave birth to Jacob, another son of promise, those people are the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. So what Paul is really doing as he goes back over these issues of what is the status of the Jewish people now is their bond with God over? Has God simply said, if, if what Paul is saying is true, that we no longer have to be burdened by the idea of fulfilling the law in our own terms, does that mean that the law that God gave was somehow incomplete or lacking? Does it mean that he's decided to erase it and start over? And what about those people that he made a promise to? You see, Paul wants us to be very aware that God does not break his promises even when the people he's made covenant with, they themselves break it. And you know why Paul wants us to be aware of it? Because that's who we are. That's what we do. We break covenant too. We have all broken covenant with God. And so the question could arise, and it goes to the heart, I think, of what our brother John was speaking to this morning. If I have broken my covenant with God, if I have broken his law, if I've turned against his word, if I've turned away from him, then isn't there some point where he might turn away from me? And Paul wants to say, no. The fact of the matter is God knew from the beginning all the challenges that there would be. And God, who is faithful, will remain faithful to his word, even if you and I don't. But part of the promise is that God can make us faithful. And this is not a new idea. 
This is at the very heart of the law of the word of God from the beginning. So in throughout Romans, really, but in chapters 9 and 10 and 11, you may be noticing, and you'll certainly see it on display today as we continue into this chapter, Paul goes to great lengths to quote from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament or Old Covenant as we know it. And the reason he does so is because that word is alive and active and still, still relevant, still applicable. So what we're going to do first is take a look here at Deuteronomy 30. Now this is from the books of Moses. This is from the Old Testament. But Paul is going to quote extensively from Deuteronomy 30 in the 10th chapter of Romans. So let's see what Moses, on behalf of the Lord, says to the people back here in the days when they were still in the wilderness. The Lord your God will prosper you abundantly. This is a pattern to prosper. If you keep his commandments written in this law, that is, in other words, if this word is in your heart, and if this pattern is the pattern you live by, then it'll be a pattern that prospers. If you turn to the Lord God, say that phrase that's right there, and it's italicized, with all your heart and soul. Say that. With all your heart and soul. Makes me think of the piano tune, right? Heart and soul. Heart and soul, all the time. Everything that you are given to him, focused on him. And you might say, that's too hard to do. But here, Moses says, inspired by the Spirit, it is not too difficult for you, and it's not out of your reach. It's not up in heaven that you somehow have to aspire to be everything that God calls you to be before you can even begin to start trying to be what God calls you to be. So that you would say, well, who's going to go up to heaven to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Notice that phrase, that we may observe it. In other words, that we could actually do it. It's the distinction between just knowing about something and actually growing in it and living in it and flowing in it. Nor is it beyond the deep down somewhere that you should say, who's going to cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Isn't this actually the idea that many of us have in our hearts about things that God wants from us? Well, nobody can really do that. I mean, you'd have to be some kind of saint to do that. Or you'd have to somehow go through some great journey to do that. And God's saying, no. Actually, it's all right here in your heart. The word is very near you. In your mouth and in your heart. When he says in your mouth, what he's saying is he's talking to a community of people who have been called to read this word aloud. So in other words, when he says in your mouth, you and I could think of it this way. It's in your ears, but he's also saying it's in your practice. When you congregate together and you read these words, you're saying them, but are you hearing them? Are they penetrating your heart? If they are, it's in your heart. It's in you. Or as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, what God wants from you is within you, and it's not out of your reach. Now, his righteousness is out of our reach, and his power is out of our reach, except for this. He has reached out to us. But it's in our heart that he wants to connect with us. Heaven, the deep down below, and the word within. These three ideas, I think, are particularly part of what is appealing to Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he comes to take this passage into 
the, the uh, letter to the Romans because he wants to talk to them about what is in their mouth, in their heart, and being worked out in their lives so that you may observe it. In other words, he wants to make it clear to them and by extension to us how this word that you know, that you're hearing, maybe you say, well, I don't really know the word. Well, whose fault is that, right? But if you're hearing this message today, you're hearing the word. So the word is near you. It's in your ears. And if you will allow it into you, it's in your heart. Then God will show you how to observe it because God will enable you to fulfill it because it is God who fulfills it. So we come to Romans 10 here. And I'm skipping a, a little bit around in the chapter this morning with you because I want to focus on this particular parallel first between Deuteronomy 30, the word of the Lord, the Torah, and the letter of Paul in the New Testament. First, I want to make something clear about the phrase that I've used as the title for this morning's message, Christ, the purpose of the law. It's drawn from verse 4 of Romans 10. Here Paul is saying, Christ is the culmination of the law. So what Moses was talking about back there in Deuteronomy 30 was the way of God, right? The word of God and his ways and his will. Word, ways, and will. The righteousness of God. The love of God. The living, uh, fruitful wholeness of God. That's the law. But it has also been articulated in this specific, literal, legal code. The Mosaic law. That is part of God's word. And so with both of those, I believe, Paul is saying here, Christ is the culmination or fulfillment of that. The Greek term is telos, telos. So Christ is the telos of the law of the Torah so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. It's one of those phrases that would be easy to just kind of let it wash over your ears. But remember, if you let it just wash over your ears, it may not be getting into your heart. What's the seed that God wants to sow into our hearts with this statement? It's this, that the purpose of God is for you to be made righteous. And that is not because God is some kind of, you know, <laughs> cosmic librarian who looks at people and just says, well, you're just so, you know, the church lady, if you remember the church lady from Saturday Night Live, it's probably not a great reference on a Sunday morning, but years ago, the church lady was, you know, the, the idea of this sort of uptight, snippety woman, very churchy, who just like to look at everybody and say, well, isn't that special? You just are just so, you're just so profane and you're just such a, you know, and she would critique everyone in terms of their lifestyle. But that's not God. God's not up there going, mm -mm -mm, you naughty little things. The righteousness of God is the Lord saying, I see you in your death, your depression and your destruction and your debt and your despair, your confusion and your waywardness, your violence. And I want to bring to you righteousness, which saves you out of those things, lifts you out of those things, cleans you from those things, lets you sparkle and shine and be strong in the things of the Lord. And Christ is the one who is the fulfillment of that promise, the telos. Now, there's a variety of ways in which telos can be tr uh, translated, and it becomes a, a, a little bit of a debate uh, among theologians, I suppose, or some commentators, when you come to this passage. I don't care to make it a debate for you. I don't think it needs to be. But the reason is because there's a question, and the question is, if telos can be translated these various ways, which one 
is the proper one that Paul would have in mind if Paul were here to tell us, if the Holy Spirit were here to tell us, oh, the Holy Spirit is here to tell us. What a wonderful thing. We can ask God, what did you have in mind as you inspired this word? Telos can mean a goal, a purpose, the thing that you are aiming for, right? There's a plan, and this is how we see it being completed. It's the, the blueprint that is to be achieved. Or it can be the consummation of something, the culmination of something, the fulfillment of something. In other words, there's a process involved, and telos is the completion of that process. Indeed, completion is another way it can be translated. But this final set of translations really uh, reflect the more terminal aspect of it. It's the end point. Now, there's another question here, which is, what is it when Paul says the law? What does he mean? Is he talking about the way of God, or is he just talking about the Mosaic Code? And so the debates ensue. But I don't think that's a particular uh, necessary for me to go through all the minutiae of the different things that people have said. I would, first of all, suggest this. The statement itself allows for all of these interpretations to have some meaning in it. It is true that, God, that Christ is the culmination, that is, the finish line that the law has envisioned for people. But I also think that in saying that he is the finish line, it's also saying that he is the goal and the purpose and the aim, and that he is the one who is going about the process of bringing us from just an envisioned goal to a completed reality. In other words, Jesus Christ, who is Alpha and Omega, is the one who calls and the one who fulfills. And so the law that is being talked about here, I believe Paul mostly has in mind the idea of God's way of living and being that he desires for us to enter into, and Christ is the one who enables that to happen. He's the one who opens the door for us into that process. He completes our security so that we have received already this place in, God's, in, in God, but he also achieves in us the activation and the application of that in our lives. And, and the reason why I believe the, the, the surrounding context of the scripture in this point affirms that reading of it is evidenced in the ensuing verses. Here is where Paul is going back to quote from Deuteronomy 30. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Now you heard something similar to that about the prosperity that God promises to people who observe his ways, but this particular quote I believe is also from Leviticus. So again and again the word of the Lord says, this promise is to you that God will enable you to live this holy life if you desire to and are willing to let him do that in you. But it does not happen by human effort nor is it through the exquisite observation of every aspect of the law. Good for us that it isn't because we have failed to achieve everything that the law requires of us, but rather it is by faith. And this is, of course, the theme that Paul keeps coming back to over and over again. And this is the very uh, notion, the very concept that the Holy Spirit would desire for you and I to deeply appropriate, that it's faith that God is calling us to, and faith that God gives us. And that's not something that is far away from us as long as God is the one that is providing it. Don't say in your heart who will go up into heaven. Don't say who will descend into deep because Christ is the one who came from heaven. Christ is the one who went down into the earth. Christ is the one who rose up again. So Christ has already brought to us all these things and made them close and near to us. 
And that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. In other words, Paul is saying, that is my gospel. And that is our gospel. That if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, there's a unique thing that happens in the translation from the Greek language, uh, uh, particularly, I suppose, Koine Greek, ancient Greek, and contemporary English. And that is that we don't have quite the, the, the right parallels for tense. Uh, that is, you know, whether something is being described as being past tense or present tense or future tense. Maybe you remember from school, there, there's more sophisticated tenses than that. There's, you know, imperfect and perfect and present perfect and past imperfect. Oh, the head could swim with all of these things. And you might say, who will go into the grammar book and help us to understand? But don't worry, it's close to you. It's near to you. The statement there that says you will be saved, the most literal way that you can translate that from the Greek and really capture the tense that is involved is to say, you shall be being saved. You shall be being saved. So this is clarifying, I think. Don't just go to sleep on me now, okay? When you and I hear something like, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. It can devolve into religious formula, and you just sort of tick the boxes. But that is something that isn't going in deeply into the heart, right? Or the risk is that we're just saying phrases that we don't know what they mean. If he says, oh, you have, to, you have to declare it with your mouth, you have to believe it in your heart, then isn't this returning to the notion of it's my effort that will save me? Okay, I've got to say the right things and feel the right things. And you can start to turn inward in a way that is destructive or counterproductive at least and try and control yourself into salvation. But that's not the point that's being made here. It's not saying you're not saved, but if you will say this and feel this, then you will be saved. Salvation's already been secured by Christ. The point that is being made here is how does that salvation get worked out into you? How does it become operative as the pattern of your life? And here, this is what Paul is really giving clarity to. He's saying that when you are saying these things, if you're really believing them, then salvation is operating in you. And it's not something you've achieved. It's what God is doing. He's forming your thoughts. He's guiding your feelings. He's correcting your feelings. Right? He is dealing with what needs to be pruned and what wants to be fostered. And in that, your salvation is bringing forth fruit. And you are being saved. It's being activated and carried out in your life. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. In other words, it's Christ who justifies you. It's Christ who saves you. But it's in your heart that you'll know Christ. And if Christ is in your heart, he will be in your mouth. And if he's not in your mouth, watch out, because that means he's not in your heart. If you're not talking about him anywhere, if he doesn't seep into your conversation, if he doesn't shine through your face, then he may not be in you at all. And it's not because he doesn't want to be in you. It's because you and I could revert to some religious way of trying to be like him instead of just letting him be in us. Or it could be that we have become so enamored with the things of the world that we're more interested in being like the world than we are in being like Christ because those are two different things. You can't be worldly and Christ-like because Christ-like isn't worldly. 
So you've got to choose which one. And it's in your heart that you choose, and it's in your mouth that that choice is reflected. But it isn't your choice that saves you. It's Christ who is the purpose of the law and its fulfillment. So in heaven above, in the depths below, and in your heart are all being connected in Christ. And I think this gives a structure that we see at work in the rest of the chapter. There is a focus on eternal life, but it's not just about some endpoint. Or if it is, then we're being called to think of that endpoint in a way that Paul talks about it elsewhere. For instance, in Philippians, among other things. The author of Hebrews talks about it this way too, which is the finish line of a race. But the racer, the, the runner, never forgets about the finish line. Can you imagine running a race and not knowing where the finish line is? Much less not caring. Why are you running the race? Right? So you're running the race and you see the finish line. That doesn't mean that the finish line, that you've reached the finish line. On the other hand, it does mean that the finish line is there. It's not waiting for you to arrive in order to be there. But there's a route that you are running. There's a direction that you've been called in. And that's what eternal life is. It's the work of faith that is, in fact, the work of God. God set the course and God equips you and I to run the race. But you and I need to know that we are runners called into that race and that there is a finish line that we are called to. So how do we run? We run in the Lord. We run in the Spirit. We run in the things of the Word. And we run as witnesses. That's what we've been commissioned to be, isn't it? When we came to Christ, Christ gave us a mission. It's His mission. You will be my witnesses. Witnesses to what? To the message of faith. And so that means that you and I have to be walking in faith. There's no way that we can witness to something that we aren't actually living. And if we are actually living it, then we will witness it. Now, we falter and fall. I said, you know, if Christ is in you, he'll be in your mouth. He'll be shining through your face. But I'm here to testify to you. There are times where you don't see Christ on my face. You don't hear Christ in my words. And those are the times when I'm faltering. But I pray that those times would be weeded out of me by the Lord and that more and more I'd be aligned with his ways and his things. And so that's the internal uh, disposition of my heart in response to his invitation that brings about the walk of faith. Now, these things build on each other and even in the chapter. So when Paul is talking about what is the goal of the law, what, what in fact is its purpose, is that you would believe, not just in the law, but in the Lord who gave the law. In other words, that you would believe in God, that you would believe in his help, that you would believe in his hope, and that that would guide your internal uh, walk of faith, and that it would also then empower and formulate, you know, conform you and I to the external witness of our faith. Now, we live here below, right? We're not up in heaven, but heaven can be made witness to the world around us here below as we confess with our mouth the word that we have believed in our heart. And when we do so, we not only are living according to the call and running the race towards the finish line, but we are enlisting other people to do the same, and our entire life becomes a declaration. That, that's the kind of witness that God wants us to be. Not just the church lady who says, you know, the Bible says this and you're not doing it, but instead someone who can with compassion and tenderness say to another, how is your faith? And when that person may some, say something like dormant or I don't know, what you can share is not how they're supposed to live, but how God is saving you. Amen. You can share about how 
It has not just been him helping me. He's been everything. He is everything. He saves me. And he can save you. That's the call of faith that becomes the declaration of our life. Believing in your heart is where the internal walk of faith begins. But it's like I said earlier today, it's where we return daily. Where is my heart? Where is my focus? Where is the focus of my heart? What's the temperature of my faith in the Lord? Jesus is the one who brings faith to us. So if you lack faith, this is why James says, if you lack faith, ask God for it. Where do you think you're going to get faith from? You can't cook it up. There's no recipe for faith that you can make because faith comes by hearing the word of God, which means it comes from God. And in fact, when Paul says that faith, hope, and love abide eternally, just as we know that love is God and God is love, so faith is God. It's his righteousness. Jesus brings that faith to life inside of me, inside of you, when we dwell in him, so that we can live according to his truth, according to his freedom, according to his righteous example, with the confidence of his eternal hope from the inside out. It's not just something being plastered around us. It's something growing alive within us. Now, if you read Romans 10 this week, and I encourage you to do that, you'll see how Paul prefaces these remarks by talking about them in the context of his relationship to his own people, his people group. National Israel, the Jewish people. And what he's saying is, I want that salvation to be operating in them. And that my whole heart and prayer and purpose and desire is that they would have that. Why didn't they? If they have the word, why wouldn't they have that faith? Well, recognize this is a Jewish man that is saying it, Paul. So it's not as though none of them have it. There are Jewish people that have that faith, right? Paul at that time recognizes he's writing to Messianic Jewish people who believe in Christ. And there are plenty of Gentile people that don't believe either. But Paul is making a particular point about can God be trusted to keep his promises since we know that people falter and fall? So the, the first element is why do they fall? What was the faltering? What did they get wrong so that you and I might not follow in that pattern? Because I tell you that the very things that the Jewish people faltered in are the things that people in the church falter in today. And, the, and, and when we turn and look backward and say, oh, they were legalists and all they were concerned with was trying to fulfill the, the, the standards of the law, but they didn't really have it operating in their heart, we become like the church lady, looking back at the root that we branched off of, the root that we were grafted into and going, they got it wrong. And then we turn and do the exact same things today. And Pharisees throughout the land declare the name of Jesus, but don't demonstrate anything of his grace and love or real operative power. They did not know the righteousness of God. Know here is not just an intellectual apprehension. What he's saying is they did not comprehend it. They didn't understand that this was not just about a set of standards, but instead a living spirit. And because of that, they tried to fulfill the set of standards instead of submitting themselves to the living spirit. And because of that, they went astray because they lost sight of the goal. But Christ made the goal visible. Christ is the purpose of the law so that everyone could see that goal and recognize that it is in Christ that it is fulfilled. So come and be in Christ so that Christ and you can work out the hope of glory. And it's the word of Christ that is constantly guiding us in that lifestyle. So you need to believe it in your heart. You need to confess it in your mouth. 
You need to live it out in your life so that it may be observable. Declare with your mouth, believe in your heart, and live a life that reflects eternal salvation. So I want to take you back to this grid. The external witness of faith can't happen unless you have the word of God to declare and you have the will of God in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, Eric Evangelist who's just perfectly aligned in every way at every moment. But instead, what it means is I want to be transparent. I want what God is doing inside of me to be visible externally. And I also want to know the word so that when I am uh, confessing what God is doing in me and in those that, that I know that know him, I'm confessing it according to the reality of his word. So I need to focus on my heart. And then I need to let what's going on in my heart be known in the world around me. And that is how eternity is actually operating through me right now. So that who I am meant to be for eternity is what I am becoming every day as I walk in this way. Anyone who believes in this way is going to be living according to a promise that you can't yet fully see. And you might say, well, will I be ashamed? In other words, what if I fall short, right? If you're telling me that these Jewish people had the law and they had the word, but they got the wrong idea about it, and because of that, they've gone astray, maybe I would go astray too. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. If you put your trust in the Lord and you put his word in your heart, you will not be put to shame because he will absolutely fulfill his promise. And the promise is not just to Jews. It is to all people by faith. There's no difference in God's eyes between Jewish people and Gentile people in terms of their humanity, in terms of who we are. We're all the same to him. It's not as though Jewish people were better because they're Jewish. They're Jewish because God brought them into that covenant. And, and in fact, what he said was, it's not just a generic, or, or, uh, not just an ethnic people group, but rather a people of faith. And so that's available to anyone. So everyone can call on the name of the Lord. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be being saved. But how are they going to call on someone that they don't believe in? And how are they going to believe in someone if they haven't heard about him? And how are you going to tell them about him unless you have his word to do so? And how can you actually preach this word if God who gave the word hasn't sent you with it? But don't you see that what Paul is implying here is you do have the word. It is near you. It's in your heart and it's in your mouth. And you do have the call. He has called you and sent you. That's what apostle means. And so you, like Paul, can say, I'm a slave to this message and it's a good message. It's a good word and I'm going to declare it. You may not be a pastor, but you are a preacher. You are called to be a preacher. And you're called to be a preacher through your life through who you are, not just through what you say. What you say is the frosting on the cake. We've been watching the British baking show. We love it. Don't put too much frosting on. Just enough. Don't, you know, you don't want to... What, what, what the frosting does is really um, bring an enhancement to the whole batter, right? But it's the cake that is the real stuff. And so, yes, of course, your words should reflect the Lord. But if your words reflect the Lord and your life doesn't, of what value are your words? What preaches most of all is the person. And the Lord wants you to be beautiful with his beauty, to be powerful with his strength, and 
to declare his purpose. And then how beautiful are the feet of those who bring that message to others. Jesus' spirit empowers us to witness with others to others around us so that our declaration of what God has done and is doing in us becomes inspiration to them and help to them and a means by which his word can enter into their ears and hopefully into their hearts because it's the word of life that saves. And it is that salvation that is eternity. Our eternal lives have already begun if we are alive in Christ. And so we should be living out that eternity here and now. None of us knows how many days we have, but our days are numbered, but our eternity is without number. So live according to the eternal thing even now. This has always been the message of the Lord, but not everybody who heard the message accepted it. Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But when he says faith comes from hearing the message, he means not just hearing with your ears and knowing with your mind, but hearing with your heart and believing in your soul. And then faith is implanted in you. Didn't they hear? Of course they did. In fact, the witness of the Jewish people is still going out into the word world because this word of God was given to them and given by them to the world. The savior of the world is the Jewish Messiah. So God has not abandoned what he began. He is completing it. He is fulfilling it. But the wonderful uh, promise to us is that it is not dependent upon our, uh, our birth or our accomplishments. It's dependent upon his promise. Didn't Israel understand this? Well, God has a purpose even in the turning away. Moses even said, by the inspiration of the Lord, I will make you, this people of Israel, envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. In other words, I will extend this message to people who weren't even looking for it, and they will find me because I went and found them. But in that turning, there will be yet another witness. You know that one of the places in the world today where the Christian gospel is preached with most fervency and with increasing acceptance is in Israel. I think that you could consider Israel a kind of cosmic clock. The more people that come to faith in Israel, the closer I think we are to the coming of the Lord. It might be a worthy purpose to be a part of that witness. Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The Lord's holding out his hands to you this morning. And he's saying, will you put your hand in mine? Will you put your heart in mine? Will you let me live out my life in you? The invitation is to everyone. Many are called. But you have to make a response in order to receive and believe what God is offering. In this room, we are believers. You've made a response. But each day, you and I have a choice to make. Will I live in obedience to that call and that, and that response? Or will I live in ignorance of it? Am I running towards the finish line of the race? Or am I running another race entirely? But remember this. 
before you get too caught up in thinking that it's all about you and what you can do, God came and found you. He was looking for you and me before we ever even knew to look for him. And if he has done that, then he is for you and not against you. He wants you to prosper. My final statements today have to do with a pattern for how you and I can prosper in the things of the Lord, no matter what trial or challenge we may face, because trials and challenges come. But there is an eternal hope that we are living in and from. God's revelation activates his transformational faith at work in each believer to shape us according to his eternal plan of spiritual formation. The word formation got cut off there. Maybe it's because it's going to happen in you. He wants to form you to be like him, to live in a way in which the eternal is your axis of praxis. It's the center that your whole life revolves around. Your being and doing is all caught up in the being and doing of God who has prepared good works for you in advance so that his good works and his righteousness would be your witness to the world around you because of your internal life of faith where you're connected to him through personal prayer. Speak to him. Call upon him. You need help? Ask for help. You're upset? Share your upsetness. You're worried? You're afraid? You're hurting? You're in pain? Open the wound to him. Open the way to him. Yield yourself to him. Cry upon his shoulder. Weep at his feet. You're ashamed. You're embarrassed. You're confused. Then these are the things that you can pray about. And when you do, you will have reasons to praise him because he will answer. You call on the Lord and the Lord will answer. He'll give you insight. He'll give you understanding. He'll help you to grow. And as you grow, you'll start to show. You'll start to share everything of what God is doing in you. You'll confess the ways that you've fallen. You'll be able to share your failures without fear or condemnation or shame. In fact, you will rejoice that someone as wrong and wicked and wayward as you have been has been made more and more right in him. And that proclamation, accompanied by his word, will bring faith to people around you so that they can get connected inside, so that they can begin to grow and show. And all of this is the eternal promise of what the law first envisioned and what God has always intended, which is that we should be able to dwell forever in him, with him, and in his ways. It's the purpose of the law. It's the purpose of this word. And it is the promise and the fulfillment of Christ. Lord Jesus, we can never even begin to thank you enough. Or I suppose we must begin, but we'll never come to the end of it. You've brought an end to our sin, and we are still seeing that carried out, but you've accomplished it. And you know what the end of each of our lives are on this earth, so that even though we don't know that and we can't see it, what we know is you'll take us over that finish line and into the eternal place of your grace. There's an end to this world, and though we do not know exactly when that happens, even our science tells us that this is a finite place. But your infinite grace can infuse this place with all the love and light of your face. We invite that in ourselves. Come into us today, Lord, once again. Maybe it's the first time. 
Lord, if there's somebody who's hearing this prayer or praying it with me, and they've not been yours, they haven't belonged to you, they haven't given their life to you, I pray with them now, Lord, that they yield to you. And like the sun bursting from behind the clouds, I pray that your spirit would shine on them, Lord, right now. Shining your love, your approval, your grace, your forgiveness, your wisdom, your guidance, your assurance. Lord, for someone who maybe would say, like the man in the program, my faith is dormant. It's gone to sleep. Or it's shipwrecked. It hit rocks that it just could not sail over. And I think it's, I think it's wrecked. There's no resolution. Lord, your supernatural grace comes to that one right now to say, all things are possible with God. It's not too late. You're not without hope. In fact, your hope is in me. I will correct it all. I will heal it all. Just trust me. Stop trying to fix everything and just put it into my hands. Let me fix it. Let me save you. That's what I've come to do. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. For those of us who have been in those places, Lord, we've been down in the pit and you found us. <laughs> Help us to share about that with others, Lord. For those of us who really know that we know you personally, help us to show you personally that you're not just an idea or some historical figure dusty in a book, but you're living today in us. Give us your word and by your spirit, make us your witnesses and fulfill your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.